Chapter 3. Navigating Dilemmas of Sinking and Swimming. Corinne. Biology and General Science. Just before her high school juniors and seniors enter the room, Corinne shares her lesson plan with me. I'll be essentially just telling them what's on the test so they can study, she confides, but they won't. Her anatomy and physiology students soon stream into the room from lunch, many discussing plans for the upcoming four-day weekend. One student drops his bag and heads straight to the front of the room to show Corinne his chest x-ray from a recent hospital visit. She examines the acetate enthusiastically, pointing at different structures and questioning him about his diagnosis before returning it. Class begins at 11.25 a.m., and at the bell, Corinne says, Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we have a few things to do today. As conversations draw to a close, she adds, It shouldn't take too long, so you'll have time to socialize and finish your other work later. This group is about half the size as her freshman environmental science classes and presents significantly fewer classroom management challenges. She begins walking through the aisles of single desks, which are arranged in rows and columns facing forward. I'm handing back your senses packet, she says. One student's backpack is on the floor, and Corinne trips over it. She catches her balance and does not fall, but is clearly in pain. That was not good, she says, holding her knee up slightly. The owner of the bag apologizes and moves his bag. I'll try not to cry, Corinne says with a wincing smile. She maintains a brave face as she limps through the distribution of the remaining packets, which students leave through purposefully as she slides into the chair at the front desk. On the test, she says from the chair, be very precise in your answers. A student walks in late. Nice of you to join us, Corinne says to him. Another student gives him a hard time, asking where his pass is, but Corinne is continuing with the review. She points to some specific examples in the packet she has just returned. Be careful of the question, she continues, and answer the question that is asked. Corinne reads through the list projected on the board. Nervous system review. 70 points total, 20 anatomy lab practical, 32 on Scantron, bring a number 2 pencil, 18 points short answer. The next slide, labeled Neurons, details the exact content the students will need to know for the test one week from today. Corinne reads the slide to the students. Be able to name the parts of a neuron and the function of these parts, she says. The presentation aligns with the packet, and the students ask questions along the way, apparently correcting their work. Be able to name the different types of neurons and what they do, she adds. We get a note card, right? A student in the center of the class asks. Corinne nods and reminds them it must be a standard-sized note card and they may contain only notes on physiology, not anatomy. She then advances to a slide about the brain and the various functions of the central and peripheral nervous systems. While she is describing the autonomic nervous system, a student calls out, How's your knee? Corinne laughs, saying it's better, and jokes with the students that they ought to be able to explain the neurological basis for her knee pain on the upcoming test. Corinne continues the review. What is the function of the cerebrospinal fluid, she asks as the next slide appears. The class is now quiet, and only two students still write in their packets, while the rest of the class just looks at the screen. She advances to a slide labeled Senses. In discussing what students need to know about the ear, she asks, do you want me to take out the model? The students are unresponsive, and Corinne waits patiently. One student breaks the silence to ask, Are we ever going to finish those video things? No, well, 
Corinne considers this for a moment. We might actually have some time today. She then proceeds to the final slide, which details what students need to know about the myelination of neurons. Okay, that's it, she says. The test review has taken a total of 15 minutes. We have some time, she says. I'd like you to finish up the reflex lab if you haven't already. She reminds students of other ways they can use their class time to study for the test. As students begin their work, one asks where Corinne's cooperating teacher, Mrs. Muller, is today. Corinne answers that she is in and out of the building, planting trees with school groups for Earth Day. Most students form study groups. A few work independently. One group asks Corinne for the plastic model of the ear. She pulls it down off the top shelf and brings the eye model down as well. The students in the group ask her to help with the ear physiology review, and a question about the cochlea sends all of them, including Corinne, to the textbook. Corinne notices two students playing with the electronic whiteboard. She calls across the room, only with permission. They put the markers down and return to the lab table, where another group is using a flashlight and ruler to examine the dilation of each other's pupils. This task soon complete, the group sits around and talks while Corinne enters information at the front computer. Two girls approach Corinne and ask her to set up the video on neurological disorders so they can finish watching it. One segment of the video is about a man diagnosed with aphasia, who speaks nonsense words as if they were clear speech, and it captures the attention of the whole class. What's wrong with him? asks one student from the back of the room. Corinne responds, look in your packet. At noon, there are only a few minutes left in the period, and with the video over, all of the students are sitting and talking either on top of the lab tables or at their desks. Corinne is still at the computer and delicately taunts the class. So, you all have plenty of time to study, right? Because you could be studying right now. As the students congregate by the door, she calls out, I'm expecting some really good grades on Wednesday, before wishing them a happy weekend. Corinne grew up in the Midwestern United States in what she described as a very white, fairly poor, rural background. Despite coming of age in what she dubbed the lecture, problem, and canned lab era of high school science, biology held a lifelong fascination for her. As a college student, she quickly decided on a career in science and thrived as a learner in the university environment. I soak up lecture like you would not believe, she told me. After receiving her Ph.D. in molecular genetics from DiLorenzo University, Corinne pursued her desire to teach by working with undergraduates in a university research environment. Though she maintained a love of molecular biology, she found the actual day-to-day -day work of a research scientist uninspiring. A history teacher friend helped her make arrangements to spend a day in his school's biology and chemistry classes, and this experience catalyzed Corinne's decision to become a high school science teacher. Shortly after her youngest child was of preschool age, Corinne applied to the post-baccalaureate program at Acacia College, a private institution in DiLorenzo City, affiliated with the Catholic Church. Like the other programs in this study, the initial semester consisted of on-campus coursework. In each subsequent term, prospective teachers spent more time in schools through the final semester when full-time student teaching took place. As a program requirement in the spring of her second semester, Corinne spent time in an area middle school observing classes. Her impressions described in a reflection paper for her Human Issues class are worth quoting at length. I walked into my initial practicum middle school on Thursday and was quite shocked. I live in the neighborhood and know that the student population is mixed in our school, but I was not prepared for the numbers. 
Maybe one-third of the class was white. Maybe. I was assigned my group of mentees, and we went out in the hall to chat. I had no idea what to say to these kids, so we went over the basics. What do you like to do? What's your family like? What are you interested in? They're neat kids, but I don't know how to form a connection with them. I'm a little worried that I'm going to be the weird white lady we have to hang around with. What it comes down to is fear. I am afraid. What if I make a mistake and insult these kids and make them feel inferior or anger their parents? I am completely ignorant of the cultural background of these children. We are not peers. How can I make a connection with these kids and get comfortable enough to teach them? It is a little about race, since that's part of their identity, but my issue is really with their culture. I'm completely out of my element. I live in the city now, but I am not part of minority urban culture. Later, she described this first encounter with diversity in her middle school practicum as one of the most enlightening experiences of her whole program, and the hardest thing to deal with. Corinne's second practicum placement, which occurred in the fall semester during this study, was at Acacia High School, the K-12 private school associated with Acacia College. Though her role in the class was primarily observational, she did have some opportunities to teach lessons. Going into full-time student teaching, Corinne's goals included learning to plan coherent and differentiated lessons, become more comfortable in the classroom, and learn those little efficiency things to keep a classroom rolling. Classroom management issues had been important to Corinne during practicum, but she did not see maintaining control of student behavior as an end in itself. She was wary of creating a false atmosphere of an efficient classroom, where students are doing what they're supposed to do rather than really learning and engaging in the curriculum. Corinne's full-time student teaching placement was at Ridgefield High School, in a rural suburb 10 miles south of DiLorenzo City. The local Chamber of Commerce described the town in one of their publications as a family-friendly, small-town atmosphere with easy access to all that nearby DiLorenzo City had to offer, world-class education, employment, and cultural fairs opportunities. As shown in Table 3.1, nearly 95% of the students in the school identified as white. Total enrollment? 1,225 students, 0.2% American Indian, 1.3% Asian, 1.8% Black, 2.1% Hispanic, 94.5% White. Her cooperating teacher, Mrs. Muller, had been certified five years prior by the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards and was one of only 30 board-certified teachers in her state with the Early Adolescence Science Certification. Corinne quickly assumed responsibility for a human anatomy and physiology class for 11th and 12th grade students, and two sections of environmental science, a required course for all 9th graders in the school. The Ridgefield Environmental Science Curriculum was part of a coordinated departmental effort to focus on outcome-based education, for example, SPADI, 1994, in which units and lessons were aligned with identified student learning outcomes across the four years of science courses offered by the school. Therefore, much of the curriculum had already been planned in detail. Initially, Mrs. Muller taught the morning section of the class, and Corinne used the same lesson plans with her afternoon students, a practice called follow teaching within the teacher education programs of this study. And though by mid-April Corinne had assumed responsibility for all five of her cooperating teachers' classes, she was expected by Mrs. Muller to draw heavily on the curriculum materials previously developed for each course. This left precious little space for Corinne's creativity as an ambitious student teacher. However, a number of her students had individual education plans, or IEPs, and Corinne worked with special education assistants to modify her lessons throughout the semester. 
One of the notable features of Corinne's placement at Ridgefield was the extent to which technology was incorporated into the ongoing activities of the class. Mrs. Muller maintained an extensive website for her courses that included lesson notes, slide presentations, class assignments, project details, and additional resources. Student grades were kept in an online database, and student assignments were submitted through a plagiarism prevention website. One of the effects of this arrangement was that both Corinne and her cooperating teacher spent substantial amounts of classroom time at the teacher-computer workstation in front of the room. Another was the unmistakable message that the availability of these resources placed the responsibility for learning squarely on the shoulders of students. In such an atmosphere, taking responsibility for one's own learning appeared to be the central message to students and the student-teacher alike. Corinne reported that her cooperating teacher's attitude toward teaching juniors and seniors was sink or swim. And I often felt during observations that Mrs. Muller had adopted the same attitude toward Corinne as a student-teacher, though she was certainly generous in terms of providing resources. Mrs. Muller often left the room while Corinne was teaching and Kern reported receiving little feedback from Mrs. Muller and her university supervisor. When she did, it was generally positive, but nonspecific. I followed Corinne for the second year of her teacher education program at Acacia College, and it quickly became clear to me that many of her conceptions had already been undergoing change as a result of her first year of coursework and fieldwork. In our initial interview, I presented her with a common survey question on race and ethnicity and asked her to describe her thoughts about it. Corinne felt that such data ought to be used ethically, but remained uncertain as to why someone's identity mattered. She said, It really shouldn't matter what your background is. I mean, you can have an African-American person who grew up in a middle-class rich suburb that has the same experiences as all their white colleagues, pretty much. And then you can have a white person who grew up in the trailer park on the other side of the tracks who has a very different view, so it really shouldn't matter. And yet I know that, statistically, different populations don't do as well on different tests. And why is that? Though Corinne understood the multiple ways diversity could be interpreted, she also recognized that there was something missing from her perspective. Specifically, her mental model of the way diversity operated in education could not account for the differential levels of academic achievement across racial groups. When discussing culture in our first interview, Corinne described culture as something that is part of someone's upbringing and influences individuals' ideas about what is and what is not appropriate. In a later interview, she drew on her family history to describe how she perceived the distinctions between biology, race, and culture. She said, I have siblings who are Korean. I'm not Korean, but they're my siblings. Culturally, they're Norwegian, you know. They're not really culturally Korean. They did not grow up in Korean culture. They grew up here in America. So they're American and they have more Norwegian and Swedish traditions than they do Korean traditions. So culturally, they're not Korean. Genetically, they're Korean. Racially, they're Korean. If you look at them, you would think that they're Asian, not Norwegian. If you read a description of their family life, you would think that they are Norwegian, not Korean. So that's what I mean by cultural versus genetic or biological. In talking about the role of culture in schooling, Corinne included attitude towards school and responses to authority. She saw this view of culture as useful for identifying and solving problems, but early on did not portray it as a resource to be tapped or a way to think about student learning. Corinne also felt that culture played a role in the value that African American and Latino students and their families placed on education. She said that she had encountered this idea in an education journal prior to becoming a teacher, though neither of us could identify the actual article. 
Even after a year of student teaching, she did not appear to recognize that such judgments about the value of education are notoriously unreliable, particularly when made by white teachers of children of color in urban environments. Compton Lilly, 2003. This example also highlights a difficulty faced by many prospective teachers, white and non-white alike, in talking about student diversity in categorical terms. Payne, 1990. Corinne's desire to make observations appeared to come in conflict with her unwillingness to be perceived as employing a stereotype. However, she did express an awareness of systemic racial discrimination and credited her Human Issues course with challenging her previous ideas on this topic. During this course, she reported changing her thinking about the meaning of racism and the implications of benefiting from privilege. She said, When you come from a system of privilege, and even if you're aware of the issues and don't think that you are part of the problem, it's really hard not to be part of the problem because you benefit from the system. It's also hard to admit that you're racist. Corinne had come to recognize that part of the work of teachers was to be proactive against discrimination. She said, If you're not addressing the specific needs of the student, you're doing them a disservice. And whether that's part of their skin color or not, or whether they're learning disabled or non-learning disabled, if you're not taking that into account, you're discriminating against them. Unlike some of the other studied participants, she viewed the absence of malice and the presence of discrimination as two distinct issues. This perspective allowed Corinne to assume responsibility for being explicitly anti-discriminatory in her practice and contributed to the unsettling feeling she had experienced in her middle school observations. She said, This is something that's been hard for me to think about. We just had a class on it. If you're not part of the solution, you are part of the problem. If you benefit from a system that's racially biased, you can't really separate yourself outside of that 100%. You can be aware of it, and you can try to counteract it, but if you're not doing something to counteract it, you're participating in this racially biased system, and therefore you are practicing racism. What it actually looks like for a teacher to counteract the racially biased system she described to move beyond mindfulness into action was still unknown to Corinne as she began her practicum semester. As I show below, without someone to help her enact these ideas in her daily practice, Corinne's growth in this area remained limited, even as her desire to be part of the solution remained strong. Corinne's conceptions about the pedagogical implications of student diversity underwent only minor changes during the year-long time frame of this study, and it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that this was a result of the limited racial, ethnic, and cultural diversity in her fieldwork placements. The student bodies in her third-semester practicum and full-time student teaching placements were primarily white and middle-to-upper class, and this demographic homogeneity appeared to influence how she framed the problems of teaching and learning in her classes. During the winter break between practicum and student teaching, Corinne fulfilled the state teacher education requirement by taking a course in Native American Studies offered by the State University Extension. It was at this time I asked for her response to a hypothetical scenario involving Native American students, whom other teachers had as identified as shy because they did not participate in classroom discussions. In her response, she readily invoked the notion of culture for an explanation. She said, from the literature, it's actually... Native Americans are taught not to look at teachers, and so that may be the appearance of shyness, but they're actually taught to question. That's part of their culture, so you'd have to understand the culture. 
Though she generalized Native American culture as unified and undifferentiated, rather than as a diverse set of groups with a broad range of cultural beliefs and practices, Loma Wyma, 1995, she clearly viewed culture as a mediating factor that determined how students experience school. When asked how she might approach such a situation as a teacher, Corinne also recognized the logic of structuring her classroom in ways that were consistent with her Native American students' culture. She said, Because community discussion and community voice is very common in their culture, I'd probably try to go to group discussion and participate in that and encourage that instead of calling on students and try to get more discussion going. That way they can ask questions in culturally appropriate manners for them and still learn, still participate without being sort of seen as aggressive in their culture. Such an idea is consistent with certain teacher-student communication strategies advocated by multicultural education scholars. For example, Gay, 2002, Lee, 2007. Though the Native American Studies course did not address pedagogy, Corinne pointed to it as the source of her idea. In the months to come, Corinne did not have any opportunities to expand or explore this notion of cultural congruence and communication patterns during her student teaching experience with primarily white students. At the end of her program, five months after completing the Native American Studies course, she echoed her earlier observation about cultural practices, but her preferred approach to the situation no longer involved ensuring culturally congruent forms of communication. Rather, she viewed the scenario in terms of ensuring comfort and an equal opportunity to speak in low-threat situations, without being put on the spot. She said, Give them an opportunity to speak to share information in turn. After you've done your spiel, you may say to a student, so-and-so, do you have anything you want to add or comment on or any questions? So basically, you pass the floor over to that person, and that can be done with any student. If you do that on a regular basis with a variety of people, you're not singling anybody out, and you're giving the opportunity for everyone to participate. Culture still offered Corinne a set of ideas to explain student behavior. Yet a more general management strategy designed to ensure students' comfort and motivation for participation had taken precedence over her previous idea that culture represented a pedagogical resource. During the second and third interviews, Corinne also identified a number of instances when she felt that she was not understood by her students. The underlying conception that she formed out of these observations was, the way in which a teacher communicates with her students can negatively affect student learning. Corinne recognized that some sort of blockage existed between her delivery of information and her students' reception of it. Though she did not portray these blockages as cultural in nature, such a conception may blaze a trail for Corinne's future professional growth. An ability to identify cultural differences in students' communication and participation styles is a prerequisite for being able to incorporate such understandings into one's teaching. Responding to a draft of this case, Corinne stated that she still wished to employ culturally familiar patterns of interactions with her students, even though that had not been her answer at the time. She recognized that her answer had been largely a reflection of her situation in Ridgefield, but wanted me to understand that she had not forgotten her earlier response. Just before student teaching, I reminded Corinne about her earlier struggle with understanding the relationship between academic achievement and race and she told me that she was now considering this issue as a matter of teacher expectations. It's expectations, right? She said. If you're expecting the white students to perform at this higher level, and you expect the black or non-white students to perform at this lower level, they will meet those expectations. 
Basically, if you don't do something actively to bridge that gap, it's not going to happen. Corinne had clearly made the connection between expectations and achievement, and even expressed her responsibility as a teacher to address the problem of lowered expectation for non-white students. In the sink-or-swim environment of her student teaching placement, however, acting on this awareness was easier said than done. As I detail below, by aiming to keep her academic expectations high, Corinne's choices in the following episode paradoxically served to further marginalize one of her few students of color. I visited Corinne's classroom on a regular basis, and by mid-March she had clearly established herself as the sole teacher in the afternoon environmental science class. On my arrival, it was clear that Corinne had been playing defense with a number of students who disputed their third marking period grades. I'm having empathy problems, she told me as an aside after she had sent them all back to their seats to begin the lesson. Later that period, as most students worked independently at their seats, I watched Corinne interact with Martin, one of two African-American students in the class. As a 10th grader, Martin was a year older than most of the other students. He had transferred earlier in the year from another district, where environmental science had not been a required ninth grade course, and he was in the position of needing to catch up on the material he had missed. Martin and Corinne discussed the failing grade of 58% he had received on a recent project, which left him a few points shy of passing the class for the marking period. Corinne presented him with a number of options, indicating that any of them would bring his grade above passing. I was intrigued in the way this discussion focused on completing academic requirements, with no discussion at all about the content or Martin's understanding of it. By the end of the conversation, Martin appeared disappointed, and it seemed to me, and perhaps to him also, that there would not be enough time for him to complete any of the options before the deadline the following day. Corinne drew on the sink-or-swim metaphor to describe Martin's academic difficulties to me. He's a sophomore in a freshman class and is really behind, totally underwater. Corinne's conceptions about what it meant to hold high academic expectations implied holding Martin accountable for meeting the same standards as everyone else, which in her cooperating teacher's class meant the completion of required assignments. Corinne was choosing what she felt was the right way to help Martin, and that to accord him extra attention would have represented lowering her expectations of what he was able to accomplish on his own. After reading a draft of this account, Corinne framed the problem differently, invoking one of the central dilemmas in her practice, the need to give grades. Acknowledging that Martin's passing test scores showed that he apparently understood the material, she noted that he wasn't doing the other things he needed to pass. Corinne compared Martin to a white student who was in a similar situation. This student had completed none of the other work, but had received much higher grades on his tests, bringing his final grade above passing. Corinne explained, I hate the whole grading process and wish we could just get rid of grades. But it's not just the knowledge they need, it's the work ethic and skills. How are they going to go on in life if they can't do these skills? A teacher in the resource room to which Martin had been assigned for one period each day shared some additional information with Corinne that changed the way she thought about Martin's work ethic and skills. This teacher reported that Martin had taken it on himself to tutor a number of the other African-American students also assigned to the resource room. In fact, he had apparently been helping other students at the expense of time that he could have spent on his own work. Though Corinne recognized that this information helped to explain why Martin had not completed his work, 
As a student teacher, she felt compelled to stick with her cooperating teacher's grading system. Corinne suspected that race somehow played a role in this situation, but she was not certain how to characterize what that role might be. Among many marginalized groups in the modern world, a collective approach to knowledge is strongly valued, Ladson Billings 2000, Roth and Lee 2002. An achievement is recognized with respect to the wider group. The help Martin provided to his fellow students certainly represented work ethic and skills for which he could have been given credit. Yet to do so would have undoubtedly clashed with the rigid framework and underlying individualistic rationale for the system of curriculum and grades in Corinne's school. Corinne's high expectations in this example appeared to backfire into a pedagogy of exclusion. Mitikadu, Tresu, Swadner, and Grant, 2009, ultimately exacerbating the racial academic achievement gap she had earlier decried. My interpretation is that the same rigid structure that labeled Martin as a failing student also coerced Corinne into acting against her more humanistic impulses. This raises the question of how much we ought to expect student teachers to push for change in an environment where doing so would clearly lead to conflict with established norms. I think of Jonathan Kozel's 2007 counsel for teachers to act as witnesses to injustice and to have the moral courage to do so. The teachers for whom I feel the greatest sadness, he says, are the ones who choke on their beliefs, who never act on their ideals, who never know the taste of struggle in a decent cause, and never know the thrill of even partial victories. Page 193. The real question may be whether or not teachers are being prepared in ways that allow them to bear witness to injustice and even act under hazard of professional and personal consequences. My own opinion is that we desperately need teachers who will confront inane bureaucratic practices when necessary and take the kind of risks that it would have privileged a humane response to Martin. Cultivating the necessary combination of fearlessness and pragmatism seems to me a worthy goal for teacher preparation. At the beginning of this study, I asked Corinne to examine some pages from a widely used high school biology textbook. One page from an early chapter discussed the physiology of skin, including the role of melanin as a skin pigment that absorbs various wavelengths of light. A page from a later chapter used an unsourced, and in my view, questionably constructed graph to demonstrate the fact that human skin color was determined by multiple genes. Corinne noted that the section that portrayed melanin production in human skin as a response to sunlight did not align well with the later genetic explanation for skin color and suggested alternate presentations to bring the two ideas together in a more meaningful way. In this discussion, Corinne pro focused primarily on thinking about ways for her students to understand the content. When I asked her if the racial or ethnic composition of her class could have any implications for the lesson on skin color variations, it was difficult for her to make sense of the question. She pointed at the textbook graph and said, this is a statement of fact. It's no judgment on worth or expectation. I mean, if anything, people with the darkest and lightest skin are the exceptions rather than the rule. And it's an issue of do you apprise the exception or do you apprise the mean, you know? And that has absolutely no place in a science classroom. This is a statement of evaluation. It has no judgment as to worth. In Corinne's view, taking note of her student's skin color was inextricably linked to value judgments something to be avoided at all costs. However, content that represented statements of fact were in themselves unproblematic. Corinne and I later discussed this point at length, and she clarified her thinking at the time for me. She said that though the diversity of her class might have influenced her teaching, she probably would have tried not to go there for fear of upsetting folks, of being perceived as insensitive.
Though Corinne held firm to the conception that scientific data is impersonal, even when race is part of the science content, she no longer believed that race was irrelevant to science content. In both the second and third interviews, Corinne explained that variations in skin tones among the students presented an opportunity to demonstrate how sample size affected the construction of a graph. She discussed how she would collect data on students' skin tones and described why such an activity was unproblematic in her view. She said, I'm assuming there would be some sort of chart that goes along with this classification. So everybody could match their skin tone and put the data up on a smart board in this case, or just draw a curve in class. For me, genetics is just science. It's the context. If you were talking about skin color in a social science class, that can have a different connotation than in a science class. I mean, if you're talking about genetics or anatomy, that has nothing to do with social conditions. It has to do with your DNA. When I pressed her, Corinne said that she would do such an activity, even if she only had a single student of color in the class, citing her responsibility for creating a safe classroom environment. When I asked if anything would make her decide that such an activity was not safe to do, she maintained her view on the impersonal nature of scientific data, but took other factors into account as well. Part of that, she said, would be the climate of the school or if there were some serious tensions with particular students. Even then, I would hope that with the community building we've done at the beginning, the climate of the classroom would be such that the students would know that this is not a judgment of them as an individual or them as a person of a specific culture or community, that we're talking about data, and data should be impersonal. There isn't necessarily a good or bad. It's data. There's accurate data, there's inaccurate data. For Corinne, what students brought to a discussion about the biology of skin color was limited to their skin itself. Clearly, she was viewing her students as a resource in a way she previously had not. However, she did not yet see a role for her students' prior ideas about skin color and life experiences as an influence in their learning of science content. Her specific perspective on the genetic basis and physical makeup of skin and skin color, clearly influenced by her previous PhD work in genetics, led her to approach the topic in a straightforward manner, without consideration of the conceptual resources, helpful or otherwise, that her students would bring to the task. Race is often noticed in academic contexts for students of color in ways that it is not for white students. G.L. Thompson, 2004. And this has consequences for both academic achievement and identity development. Steele, 2010. Tatum, 2003. Yet it is also true that schools commonly reproduce social inequalities while portraying such inequalities as fair and natural. Viegas and Lucas, 2002. Failure to acknowledge race or attend to race as having pedagogical implications can negatively impact student learning. Ladson Billings, 1994. Paley, 1989, Zeichner, 1996. As much as Corinne might wish her students' racial data to be impersonal, it never is. When Corinne referred to a lesson on the genetic basis of human skin color as just science and impersonal facts, she was also representing her conceptions about scientific knowledge and her conceptions about science learning. Her reliance on delivering information to students such as in using PowerPoint slides to accompany her lectures, would suggest Corinne's teaching was largely transmissionist in nature. Yet, she later told me that her frequent use of PowerPoint was a limitation imposed by her cooperating teacher, and that she would have much preferred teaching in a different way. What changed during her teacher education program 
was not her idea that teaching consisted of giving facts to students, but that, in order for it to be considered learning, the students had to do something with those facts. When asked in the initial interview if a nature show on television could be considered an example of teaching biology to a student viewer at home, she focused primarily on the transmission of information to students. She said, whoever made the program, they're providing information. That is an aspect of teaching. The student is choosing to view it, so in essence is teaching themselves. But whoever put it together is providing information for that student, so that's information transfer. I would say yes, because the people who made it think that there is some value in the information that they're disseminating. By the third interview, Corinne had recognized that disseminating information alone was not enough to ensure learning. There had to be some activity on the part of the student, preferably through guided directives. There may be learning going on there, she said, but I'm not necessarily sure that there would be teaching going on without some sort of directive to the student about things to look for, questions to think about, something like that. You need to do something with that information in order for me to consider it teaching. It might be learning, and it might be a good way to augment your teaching, but I'm not so sure if I would classify that as teaching. Such a description of directed, active learning fit observations of Corinne's practice quite well. Students in her classes were often given information, which was then followed by an activity designed to further familiarize students with the content of the lesson. It became more plausible to Corinne that her students, unlike herself, did not always learn science content by being passive receivers of information. Corinne explained that the purpose of working with the information was so students would have some time to think through the material. Though Corinne displayed a sophisticated understanding of scientific inquiry, her ability to make a distinction between the generation of scientific knowledge and the personal acquisition of knowledge had only recently become clear. The role of evidence in making knowledge claims linked the two ideas for her. Science is not a static thing, she said. When there's something we're looking at, they should be able to answer the question, what is the evidence for that? Trying to step them through explanations is more important than regurgitation, because if they don't understand why, then it doesn't mean nearly as much. I'd rather have them apply the concepts than just learn facts. Initially, Corinne indicated in both the questionnaire and the interview that explaining or demonstrating science content accurately would be sufficient for correcting student misconceptions. Although she could hypothesize about student difficulties with certain topics, Corinne did not really believe that students' prior knowledge could influence science learning very much. When identified, student misconceptions could be simply pointed out and corrected through explanation or hands-on experiences. During her practicum semester, a large part of her Methods of Teaching Science course was devoted to examining student misconceptions and reading research about the importance of student ideas and misconceptions in learning science. Her ideas about misconceptions after this semester are best categorized by the view that student misconceptions are impediments to learning. This was evident when I asked her how much she would help a student design an experiment to see if the principle of conservation of mass holds for plant growth. I would want her to go through most of it herself, she said. You have to be careful about designing this so it's not reinforcing the misconception that they're getting their mass from the soil. There's water to be considered. The whole idea is that it comes out of, from out of the air, that plants are grabbing carbon dioxide out of the air and making mass out of that. So you don't want to reinforce the idea. I mean, evaporation could account for what she's seeing here, between water here and not here. 
So you want to make sure that she's controlled all of those things so she's discovered it for herself. I mean, the whole idea is to eliminate misconceptions, and I would not want to reinforce that. That would be a bigger problem for the student, to allow her experimentation to reinforce that misconception. Corinne's answer to that same question a semester later was quite similar. Misconceptions mattered because they were barriers to learning and were quite resistant to change. Corinne considered student learning through experience to be powerful. Therefore, she felt that teachers needed to ensure that they did not provide experiences that reinforced student misconceptions. As a result, she foresaw great potential for creating new misconceptions in the lab setting if procedures were not clear and direct. Corinne also recognized that misconceptions could result from the way in which information is organized in the mind of the learner. She explained this idea using the example of her recent experience in a plant biology course, when her own conceptions about photosynthesis were brought to her attention. Corinne reported being struck by both the conception itself as well as the implication of having held it for so long, especially as someone with a PhD in a biology-related field. The professor outlined it on the board and I went, oh my goodness, she said. The larger context of it clicked into place for me. That plant mass comes from the air, really. I thought about it. I knew where everything came from. I knew plants made sugars, but the whole context of it, like what it really meant for that to be happening. I was stunned the whole day, a scientist for 20 years. I didn't study plants, so it's not something that I had been thinking about every day. But I've been a gardener, and it just never hit me that way. So if it doesn't hit me as a scientist... How's it hitting Joe Schmo on the street who doesn't have a science background, who doesn't think of things in that way? They don't get it. They don't understand the global context of it. I mean, I didn't. How many other people are walking on, around on the planet not getting it? By the completion of her student teaching, Corinne had become much more aware of various misconceptions students held about a number of topics, including photosynthesis and cellular respiration in plants. However, she continued to think of misconceptions as obstacles to understanding, and that eliminating them would be like unclogging a drain pipe to allow for the free flow of water. Leveraging student misconceptions as resources for student learning is a much more complex task and is one that she will hopefully learn over time. During the last month of her student teaching, the Ridgefield School District began a period of organizational turbulence. The effects of personnel changes, budget issues, curriculum redesign, contract negotiations, and unexpected schedule shuffles for the science department all made a lasting impact on Corinne. Observing both school and departmental politics play out during this process impressed her on the importance of taking the larger organizational contexts into account when searching for a teaching job. She noted, It's more than just the classroom. There's a lot more that you have to consider especially when finding a job. Just taking any old job could be setting yourself up for a miserable existence. Corinne elected to spend a year at home taking care of her daughter after completing her program. She met with me again the following fall, with her preschooler in tow, and having read the case, she affirmed its accuracy. As we talked, she once again emphasized the importance of finding a job in a place that had the right kind of professional community to support her as a new teacher. As a biology teacher, she told me, I can be mildly selective about the position I take. I want to make sure I fit into the larger community. I felt comfortable enough with Corinne to needle her slightly about this outlook, 
and told her that some people deliberately took jobs in places that had very little in the way of professional community because that is where they felt they were needed most. This brought forth a sigh, and Corinne told me, That's not a battle I'm willing to pitch right now. She pointed at her daughter, who was playing with the toys in the corner of the coffee shop where we sat, and reminded me of the challenge of raising young children and starting a new career at the same time. Then she smiled, perhaps more to herself than to me, and added, but maybe later. <laughs>